if we do want to achieve the lowest cost grid, provide customers access to these local solar resources and reach our clean energy goals, we have to include community solar as a major component. And to do that requires state legislation, interconnection programs, and access to the bills. Community solar, the model where neighbors, community members can collectively purchase clean electricity from a central off-site solar array has been gaining massive attention and momentum of late, offering an option for equitable access to clean energy while helping to reduce carbon emissions and promising to keep energy prices low for consumers. But how exactly is it really different from any other types of solar energy projects? And more importantly, what does it mean for you as you embrace this clean energy revolution? My name is Nico Johnson, your host, as we navigate the inner workings of what has been hailed as the fourth vertical in the solar industry. Consider this your Community Solar 101. This five-part series presents unique perspectives from industry experts on how each of us might consider the role of community solar in our business, career, or even neighborhood. Does it really provide equitable access to solar energy? Will it live up to the hype and hope? Or is it too good to be true? In episode one, we'll hear from Jeff Kramer, executive director of the Coalition for Community Solar Access, also known as CCSA, which Jeff co-founded in 2015. Jeff and I go deep into the history, roots, background of how community solar came about, and the policies, both at a federal and a state level, that have supported and are continuing to elevate this sector of the solar industry moving forward. We'll also hear from David Sandbank, Vice President of Distributed Energy Resources and Transportation at NYSERDA. David has been instrumental over the last few years in ushering in a slew of distributed energy resource policies supported at the state level by NYSERDA. And he gives us some insight into the latest legislation that was introduced to get New York to 10 gigawatts of community solar. The Community Solar Series is a production of Suncast Media and Season 1 is brought to you in partnership with EDP Renewables North America. Over the years, a segment of the industry has emerged as what has been referred to as the fourth vertical for solar. It's not just a phenomenon in the United States, but worldwide, that of community solar. We've dedicated the series that you are now listening to for those of you who are trying to figure out, is this right for me? Is this right for my company? And what decisions do I need to think through before I can actually step in and throw my hat in the ring for community solar? By way of those conversations, one of the questions I have asked is, you know, is there a trade association, a vote solar, if you will, an energy storage association equivalent to community solar? And naturally and invariably, everyone would say, you need to talk with Jeff Kramer. As such, today, we're going to kick off this community solar series with none other than the CEO of the Coalition for Community Solar Access, Mr. Jeff Kramer. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nico. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Jeff, you have had a very interesting perch to watch as this market unfolds. And today, while I know that you could go deep and wide, I want to stick to the wide aspect of how and why the community solar market exists 
at all. Would you help us understand the very first beginnings of community solar right in your home state of Colorado and how you first became aware that this was really a sector that was destined to take root and really create meaning as another outlet for an opportunity for solar to grow in the United States? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. And perhaps to level set for everyone's understanding based on the fact that some may have a lot of understanding of community solar, others may not. Defining community solar as a local solar facility, typically on the distribution system that's shared by multiple community subscribers or folks from the neighborhood, whether they be residential customers, municipalities, businesses, nonprofits, and then they receive credits on their electricity bills for the share of power that's produced in those facilities. That's a simple understanding of how community solar works. Most people are obviously familiar with rooftop solar, whether you're in the industry or not, but community solar has come on strong within the last decade. And if you're to rewind at this point, all the way back to 2006, I believe, is when the first community solar facility came online. You had rural co-ops that were looking to build solar facilities and offer benefits to their owners because they work in a cooperative ownership model. So it naturally lent itself towards creating and inventing community solar. Now, those cooperative utilities did not have the expertise of dealing with the billing issues that may be required and offering those credits to subscribers, but they did have the relationships with their customers and they did have relationships also with EPCs that could perhaps help build these facilities. So that's where you'd step in our member companies who have grown from small, you know, outfits out of their garages supporting these co-ops to large developers and community solar subscribers and providers. So if you think rural Colorado and you think some of these rural co-ops like Holy Electric that's out in the mountains near Vail and Aspen, they were thinking of, okay, how do we build these facilities and offer these subscriptions. And so as a co-op, not needing to go to the state to create a program within the PUC, they had their own authority, they could simply build these projects. And then they worked with these third-party providers that created the bill crediting mechanism for those customers. And now the early editions required pretty significant effort on behalf of the household. They had to take out big loans, $10,000, $20,000 per subscription to mm. actually own the panels. Now, when I think about what's amazing about community solar and where has the innovation happened over the this past 15 years, you think about financing really as being the backbone. We figured out how to finance local solar projects on the backs of customer demand. No longer do we need to use rate payer dollars and risk to build these projects. Growing out of 2006, 2007, 2008, these early projects where customers had to take out the $10,000, $20,000 on their own, now private financiers across the sector, debt financiers, tax equity, are supporting the deployment of community solar across the country. And all customers need to do is go online for 10 minutes, fill out their relevant information, and they get guaranteed savings on their electricity bills. To me, that's where all the innovation is coming. That's where I'm really excited. We can now build gigawatts of local solar simply based on growing customer demand. Hey, Jeff, before even financing was unlocked, which I would argue as well for all of the solar markets and verticals is one of the linchpins. One of the reasons that an agency like CCSA exists is to help not only reinforce, but 
cultivate and expand policy that undergirds market opportunity. Is there early legislation that really contributed to the formation of what we refer to now as community solar? Good question. Yeah. So I sort of went from the beginning and I skipped to the end without going to the middle. So I'll rephrase your question. How, yeah. how did we get from you know these early co-op projects to where we are today? And that happened largely by creating statewide programs, right? Yeah. And Colorado was one of the first, Colorado and Minnesota were the first two states to adopt statewide programs. And that required essentially to create a community solar program in the state that allows any customer to participate. You need three things. One, you need enabling legislation from the state legislature that allows and empowers the public utility commission to create a program. Two, you need access to the grid. So you need the ability to interconnect those projects, which is becoming more and more of a challenge, I guess you could say, but it's really a yeah. significant opportunity if you flip it on its head and we can get there in a minute. And then lastly, you need access to the customer's bill to be able to provide the benefit and those credits. And so the legislation is the starting piece that provides that opportunity for a bill credit and opportunity for interconnection into the grid. And there's various additional factors, but those are your three central pillars. And Colorado and Minnesota did that in 2010 and 2013, respectively. And they then empowered the State Public Utility Commission to create these programs and define that bill credit, define the process for interconnection and a number of other factors that involved like queue management of projects, land use provisions, specific carve outs for low to moderate income customer participation. And from there, once these programs were opened, these private developers were allowed to, whether through an RFP process or an open queue, first come, first serve, develop these projects and go seek customers that were interested in participating. And even those early days of those projects back in 2014, 2015, that's when you're getting to when CCSA was founded, you were still dealing with these fairly lengthy contracts, difficult processes. But once you sort of got from those first 100 megawatts, 200 megawatts to the first gigawatt, that was sort of a living lab of innovation mm -hmm. where financiers became more comfortable. The providers themselves became more comfortable with reaching out to customers and updating sort of the portal for customer participation. And through that, fast forward to today, we're at almost four gigawatts of community solar on the system, one gigawatt in New York State alone, in Minnesota alone. And we have a far more innovative project far more financiers, far more players in the space. Competition and innovation have really shaken up the landscape and provided lower costs, greater savings, more benefits to the grid in a sector that's not often rife with innovation <laughs> and competition. Jeff, I want to see if I've got this straight and sort of rephrase the three core elements that underscore the ability for community solar to proliferate right now are access to policy and markets, basically enabling legislation, lays the foundation for bill credits and other, another market activity. Access to the grid, which you've outlined as a significant opportunity. We're going to talk about that as well in the next episode of this series. And then access to the customer's bill or essentially how to properly offset the kilowatt hours and account for it, how to get those customers, how to set aside this option for customers. Did I capture those three as the sort of cornerstones? 
You did. You did. Those are the, the central three pillars. Amazing. Three pillars. I love it. Jeff, you mentioned some of the early examples of success. CCSA itself came about around 2015. When CCSA came online, roughly how big was the market then? And what were some early signs of success that have contributed to the growth from what I perceive to be a relatively small market then to what is a very interesting market now? Yeah, I'm going to actually hit the punchline before I hit the context, which is customer demand, right? That That is what has driven the market and will continue to drive the market. And the really novel piece of that is that you know, back in 2015, <laughs> 99% of customers did not know what community solar was. And yet all projects were still 100% subscribed or 98% mm. subscribed. So going back to 2015, when CCSA first started, you know, you had a little over 100 megawatts of community solar online, and that was mostly a combination of projects from those rural co-ops or municipal utilities that had created community solar programs. The statewide programs were just really getting underway because those early states like Colorado and Minnesota were starting from scratch. They didn't know there were not established best practices for how you create a successful community solar program. And yeah. so there's certainly lessons learned from there. And as we'll talk about in a later episode, there are some fundamental underlying reasons financially why community solar, much like solar in developing countries, is is at first a difficult product to really wrap a financier's head around, wrap Wall Street's right. head around, how to underwrite it. As I recall in those early days, you mentioned it a little bit in the beginning, most of the projects or perhaps all of them were requiring upfront payments from the customers. So similar mm -hmm. to just putting solar on your house to begin with, but you're putting solar somewhere you don't see it. For those who are thinking this might be an area that I've been looking at for a while and want to expand into, it may seem more or less obvious. But for someone who maybe is coming into the industry with relatively no understanding of how solar works, quote unquote, would you help draw the parallels and even where there are divergences from maybe the rooftop solar market where, again, someone generally will pay upfront or pay in a loan and they've got the asset on the roof, they can see it touch it. You've got a monitoring system that gives them feedback and community solar, which may not be exactly that. Rooftop solar is fairly straightforward, it has traditionally been straightforward in terms of the way customers are compensated for the solar that's on their roof. And that is you have a solar system connected directly to the demand. So the supply is connected directly physically to the demand. Well, albeit sometimes those systems are actually plugged in in front of the meter or they're behind the meter, but they're really plugged directly into the distribution system. So you have a, regardless if you're dealing with a rooftop system or a community system, you're really socializing the electrons into the distribution system. But rooftop solar, again, we're a community solar a provider. We do work with, we have very strong partnerships with rooftop solar and distributed solar, particularly through our work with the local solar for all coalition, which CCSA is a part of alongside a number of rooftop solar companies and providers. Yeah. But if you look at the broad strokes evolution here of rooftop, you're dealing with a similar sort of arc where you had upfront payment requirements for systems in the early days. 
So it really limited the access, getting back to that access word for customers. But then as the, say the lease model came into fashion and allowed the provider to own the system and lease back the benefits to to the roof, you saw a large uptick. And now you're seeing financing structures that make it even easier for the customer to own the system on their home with a loan tied to their property. In the community solar sector, we started with that upfront payment model and have evolved to a model where the customer or where the project itself is owned by a third-party provider, and the benefits are provided directly to the customer based on their subscription. We hear lots about subscription models, whether it be your cable service, a car service, transportation, subscription models are becoming ubiquitous, and that's, that's where community solar has come and evolved too. A lot of folks I speak with equate community solar by and large with like small utility scale, right? five to 50 megawatts, sometimes larger, where you basically are paying into a large system out on a big farm property. That said, a lot of states that have proliferated community solar have been able to take advantage of, and Local Solar for All is pushing more towards bringing it in towards more dense communities. I think we'll hear more about that from the DOE as well. Is community solar generally destined to be kind of a pseudo utility scale, large tract of land product, or is there a burgeoning rooftop solar market for community solar as well? Sure. And let me, let me put a pin in that really quick and actually go back to the last question. You could probably add this answer because I, it sort of lost track, which was that in describing those two parallel courses for rooftop and community solar, it's important to understand that NREL, RMI have done various studies that show that anywhere between 50 to 75 to 90% of households or customers, electricity customers, dependent on where you are in the system, don't have access to solar on their roof or on their property, whether because of rooftop angles or other factors, it's not available to everyone. And so community solar originally started as a way for customers that don't have access on their roof to access to solar in their community. So if it's not on your roof, it's around the corner in the community. And I think that actually pivots to your next question, Mm -hmm. getting to sort of what is community solar to the grid, right? We know what it is to the customer. We've established that. That's access to local solar and the benefits of that solar with a direct subscription to some portion of it. Now, what is it to the grid? And what it is to the grid is actually flexible. It can be a hundred kilowatt project on a roof somewhere with two off takers, you know, one being say the warehouse that houses it and then 10 different low income households that are local to the community, or it can be a 10 megawatt project that's located 10 miles from the load but it's still on the distribution system and potentially is paired with storage and is potentially an area where both the utility and the community solar providers have worked together to identify a need for a substation upgrade, right? And that substation upgrade that could be done both to provide better 
electricity reliability to customers as cities grow and expand is also then providing greater access to local solar through accommodating the ability to interconnect more local solar. And today, the way those upgrades are actually financed are through the the solar provider themselves. So what we like to say is community solar is not only providing clean electricity to the grid, not only providing access to solar to the vast majority of customers that don't have access to it, it's actually providing private investment in public infrastructure to upgrade grid reliability for all customers. So community solar thus can be 10 megawatts, it can be 100 kilowatts, or really anywhere that can fit on a distribution system feeder. Typically, we found that somewhere in the realm of 5, 10, maybe even 15 megawatts, but most programs around the country are in the 2 to 5 megawatt range, with some projects out west going up to 10 megawatts, though you know there's considerations of going up to 10 megawatts, regardless where it is. The last thing I'd say about it is that we've talked about these benefits for customers. We talked about benefits for the grid. One of the additional benefits is benefits for ratepayers. New York is a great example here. Very early on, before you saw gigawatts of development on the system, New York said, we have very ambitious climate goals. We realize that there's a, probably an opportunity here to redesign our electricity markets and policies to best accommodate those climate goals, but also maximize cost reductions and opportunities for innovation within the system. So today, after going back to say 2014, I believe is the start of the REV process and the value of distributed energy resources proceeding, which created the tariffs that allowed for community solar back in 2016, you know, you had no community solar on the system. They took their time. They developed a think big approach. And now we have over a gigawatt of community solar. And just, I believe it was last week or the week before, the commission green-lighted the 10 gigawatt distributed solar target by 2030. So we've seen rapid growth in a state like New York, and we'll see continued rapid growth. And that's because once you achieve economies of scale, you're reducing costs, maximizing benefits to customers for projects that typically look like small utility scale projects, but they're really distribution system projects. They're offering those same benefits that a project on its roof can do. They're different benefits, right? Every project's a little bit different, but states like New York have figured out a way to create a value stack that provides compensation based on those individual benefits that the project will provide. And that's likely something we'll see expand across the country. I'd like to pause for a moment now and introduce you to someone else who can help expand on the concept of how policy can drive the narrative around community solar. In particular, someone from the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, NYSERDA, and that person is David Sandbank, Vice President of Distributed Energy Resources and Transportation. David has been a key instrumental player in helping drive NYSERDA's focus on delivering value through their various solar programs, and in particular, the community solar program. And here you'll hear David explain the four key elements that support such a robust community solar program as the one in New York State, how NYSERDA is working to drive down customer acquisition costs, including how tools like net crediting work, how specific policy helps to drive benefits for low-income families, 
And finally, how community solar helps to cut 20% of New York's peak load. Listen in as I chat with David. David, I am impressed, as many are, with the sheer velocity of scale we've seen with community solar from all the way back 2015 when you first introduced community solar to the state. I'd love to hear, what would you say to other states who are looking to implement community solar and equitable access to renewable energy in their state? Great, Nico, and thanks for having me on your podcast. Uh, Long-time listener, you do a great job. You know, it's a good question, and, and I think the answer to that question is measure twice, cut once, get it right at the beginning as well as you can. And in order to do so, learn from states like New York, who made edits along the way to make the community solar program here the number one program in deployment in the country now. So we currently have over 1.1 gigawatts of community solar installed and generating and benefiting customers throughout the state of New York, which we're really excited about. And the reason for that is the platform of all community solar is how do you compensate those projects? And compensation is really important. It's not just missing money or anything like that. Compensation is how do you send the right price signals so that when those projects are deployed, they're benefiting all the people on the system, right? And I think that that is really important groundwork and a base for why our program can handle so much deployment because every project that's built is benefiting everybody through what we call the value stack. And the value stack had different iterations and we got, you know, made improvements along the way. And I think that's in a really good point now. So the value stack provides very good financial and bankable stability to the developers, scalability, and as I said, system-wide benefits. So that's the first thing you need to look at. I would say the second thing is you really got to look into consumer protection measures. And we work with Department of Public Service and they did a great job at setting out customer protection measures that all DER developers have to register with the state and they have to abide by contractual obligations for those projects and how they interact with the customer and make sure the customer's whole. One project can ruin it for everybody. One bad actor can ruin it for everybody. So you really have to make sure that customer and consumer protection measures are solid. The third part is customer acquisition, right? Because community solar is more expensive than you know a traditional one-off taker project, but it's vital that community solar proliferates throughout the country because it's democratization of power. And I think that's really important, especially as the political landscape changes back and forth. And so I'm a big fan of community solar and empowering, literally, a lot of people that are taking part of this you know, renewable energy transition. And in doing so, Consolidated billing is really important, and that is basically make it really easy for customers to understand their value proposition and see it all on one bill and make it really easy. And that's when we got to net crediting in our state, and that's been great. David, there are many folks potentially listening who have never really understood how this works for the customer. Do you have any concrete examples of ways that you've rolled out this net crediting that would help us better visualize it? Yeah, I mean, net crediting can rear its head in, in many ways for, for different states. Currently in New York State, net crediting works where the it's a one-bill system, so mm -hmm. the customer doesn't have to make two payments. And if a solar developer provides a 10% discount of the value of their portion of a project, 10% gets reduced on their bill, and they just pay 10% less on their total bill. It's that simple. They don't have to understand the nuances and complications that go on behind the scenes. So that's how net crediting works. And you know that's under the header of customer acquisition and trying to drive that cost down as much as possible. I think for 
any other states that are looking into community solar, you really want to drive down customer acquisition. And there's many ways to do it. First thing we did in New York State is we made it so that any customer can get out of a project on any given month. So there's nothing saying that if you get in a project, you have to wait six months to get out of it because people feel like it's sticky and they don't trust it. And that helps for low income as well. Then there was the net crediting measure, which some people might know as consolidated billing. And then we wanted to take that a step further. And the step further is in New York State, there is a requirement in the Climate Act where a minimum of 35% and a target of 40% of the benefits have to go to disadvantaged communities and low income subscribers. And community solar is really the best way I know of where we can meet those requirements and benefit low-income subscribers. David, the net crediting program, and in particular the work that you're doing with NatGrid, is a phenomenal example. What other examples would you give of ways that developers can tap into acceleration of or improve tools around customer acquisition? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, And customer acquisition is a nut we really want to crack here in New York State. And predominantly, what we'd like to do is crack that nut where low-income subscribers can be a majority of the off-takers on our community solar projects. And in doing so, as I mentioned, we have a national grid program that we're rolling out now. And that national grid program, I'm hoping we're going to see a lot of success there. We also have what we call an ICSA, which is an inclusive community solar adder available to all solar developers when they want to do a community solar project and they want to focus primarily on low-income subscribers. And that really helps them focus on that by giving them on a sliding scale. The more subscribers they're able to provide benefits to on their community solar projects, the greater the adder they will get for that project. And then there is a current white paper published or being published, and that white paper is talking about how community choice aggregation is going to work with community solar. And we'll see how that where that falls out, but that could be another customer acquisition option for the state of New York. Thank you, David. As I mentioned, over the last five plus years, the state of community solar in the state of New York has been exemplary of one that, as you said, has measured twice, cut once, and I would say exploded onto the scene in terms of organized scalability. Can you give us a sense of the impact so far to the grid and how that was able to allow you to expand the measure from six gigawatts to 10 gigawatts recently in April. Yeah, Nico, I'm really excited to talk about this because if you look at the NISO, the New York Independent System Operators data that came out in April, our distributed solar cut 20% of the peak load out. And so a lot of those are community solar projects that are modifying the load, their load modifiers. And that's not really visible, but that's really the success of community solar, that it truly does benefit everybody. And we have a lot of deployment. We have about 3.8 gigawatts of solar in the state of New York, and a lot of it's distributed solar right now. And that's, I think, why we had the green light. For the most part, nearly all the commissioners voted yes on expanding from 6 gigawatts to 10 gigawatts. And that was a proud moment in New York State. Governor Hochul announced a year ago at Earth Week about the expansion of 10 gigawatts. And that's when we put, you know, worked really hand in hand with Department of Public Service and built the roadmap on how to get to 10 gigawatts and what we think is very responsible, fiscally responsible manner. Well, thank you, David, for explaining how the state of New York and NYSERDA are supporting community solar through deeply considering how policy can be a driver for innovation and equity. And now we're going to head back to our conversation with Jeff Kramer of CCSA. I'm glad that we went to this example for New York because Jeff, I think a lot of folks just 
aren't clear on the fundamentals of how policy really drives this market. You've been involved since the very early days of helping structure the various state programs, helping the stakeholders on both sides of the aisle navigate what would work for their constituents and what would work for within the different utility models. New York, by many, I think many folks would say that New York is the the shining example right now of where community solar seems to be working. What are the hallmarks of a good community solar policy program? What are those foundational elements? And maybe within that, if you could help us understand, you know, one of the things that people do here, and you said earlier, is that these markets are structured around, so I'll say limited offerings, caps on amounts of megawatts that can be fed in under certain regimes. Could you unpack a bit, how does that policy work? So that if I'm developer thinking about structuring a market entry, I can have a better fundamental understanding of what to look for and and how to read into whether a state is really evolving the way I want, apart from being a member of CCSA, of course. Sure. And when you ask a question that way and you understand how states can do it right, it also makes me think of like, what would you do if, if you could design things designed from the very beginning? I probably wouldn't always design a system where it's 50 different state legislatures creating 50 different electricity policies. It makes it a bit complicated and it probably limits the amount of competition and innovation and cost reduction that you can achieve, but it's the world we live in. So because of that, you have to look at a state and say, if a state is simply responding to a status quo and a market where say an incumbent actor like a monopoly utility is saying, well, we know how to build a system. We we overbuild generation and transmission and ensure that we have plenty of supply for every day of the year. And they typically don't even have that. <laughs> but you end up overpaying for all the generation and the transmission, not really understanding what's happening on the distribution system. And to date, hasn't been that clean from a climate perspective. If you want to think big about cost reduction, climate, and reliability all at once, you have to think big from the beginning and see how, see the relative importance of distributed solar and storage in meeting those goals. And that's where I think you look at New York and you say, wow, they they figured that out early. They thought big from the beginning. They didn't say, okay, we're going to create a bunch of sandboxes and play in them and then regroup. No, let's understand that we're going to need a portfolio approach to reaching these goals And that portfolio is going to require big bets on each of those sandboxes. And so for the distributed solar storage and community solar sandbox, they thought big from the beginning. They set a clear target and a goal from the beginning. I believe it was by 2023, it was six gigawatts originally or five gigawatts. And now it's up to 10 gigawatts by 2030. And by doing that, they were able to empower their commission to develop a marketplace that could reach those goals and wasn't sort of playing at a pilot scale that wasn't because there's a valley of death that exists between a pilot scale and a real marketplace. If you're going to create a program like say Connecticut, you know, that has say 25 megawatts, they're not going to learn anything. They're not going to achieve those economies of scale. They're not going to bring in the actors that are required to build out a program that is robust and can work and can meet their goals. Whereas in a state like New York, when they do that, you're going to attract significant amounts of competition into the state, which is going to provide for better projects and better results and benefits for customers. 
Not to mention the fact that once you achieve and seek to achieve these higher amounts of scales, you can target the benefits you're looking for. There have been a number of studies out there, including some that we've done that I'd love to talk about later in the podcast here about how much distributed solar and storage are required to meet climate goals or 100% clean energy by 2030, 2050 at lowest cost. And we need to double down on distributed solar and storage to do that. But additionally, when you have scale and big targets, you can also say, I want to ensure that let's say the state's demographic is 40% of electricity customers are low to moderate income customers. Well, I want to ensure that 40% of that offtake are low to moderate income subscribers. Mm -hmm. That has been, I'll be the first to admit, an issue in the early days of community solar. Said, oh, well, community solar is great because everyone can benefit and access, and that'll mean that low to moderate income customers will. Well, it hasn't worked out fully that way yet, but there are programs that once you achieve these scale, these levels of scale, and if you add in these requirements, you can hit those targets. And we've already seen increasing penetrations and access to low to moderate income customers in states like Massachusetts, New Jersey's developing stronger standards. And and New York, as I I mentioned, created a 40% target for the program's benefits to reach those disadvantaged communities. Not to mention from the labor perspective, which I haven't touched on yet, the first prevailing wage requirement for projects over a megawatt. So we've got labor, which we'll talk about. We've got sort of mix of offtake that are all requirements. I'm thinking about it from a developer perspective. That's not something if I go into the California or Florida or Texas solar market, I have to think about if I'm just selling to residential, nobody's going to ask me what percentage of my portfolio of finance projects is LMI. And it's also very similar at utility scale with the exception that perhaps certain, certain jurisdictions might ask for a utility scale development to have community considerations. So that for me stands out as a key differentiator about how this is useful as infrastructure. It's useful as economic development. And as a participant in the marketplace, I feel like folks often are a little bit intimidated by the community solar market because A, they tend to, those pilot rounds like Illinois, they tend yeah, to right. they tend to just blow out. Like they sell out because developers are there, as we'll talk about in the next episode, with their land interconnection siting, et cetera, already, they know ahead which markets are, are being developed. But in a state like New York, where there's a, a huge target now, what can the rest of the United States solar markets, to your first point, if we wanted to not have 50 different policies, what could the rest of the markets glean from the solar policies in New York that would be helpful to see Oregon, New Mexico, some of the markets sure. we do see coming about evolve more naturally and, and more competitively. Yeah, I think that's probably a good moment to bring up some of the modeling. Well, New York didn't start with modeling. They corroborated their visions afterwards with good modeling that said, okay, this makes a lot of sense. And since that time, we've done significant national and state modeling with a partner of ours, Vibrant Clean Energy, to deploy a very advanced model, a model that brings transmission, distribution, generation all into one house and can consider smaller resources on the distribution system and reconcile the benefits of costs of adding 
any of those resources to the entire grid and to the state, which is really how you need to do modeling yeah. to understand the costs and benefits of a resource, which is a really important distinction to talking points that are very misleading around the cost per kilowatt or megawatt of a resource. That is not the fully burdened cost often, right? You have to do the kind of modeling that really can analyze the fully burdened cost because you might have a $80 per megawatt resource and a $20 megawatt resource required on a system to achieve the lowest cost portfolio of resources, right? Yeah. Putting that sort of proviso first, you look at New York and you know they set these big targets and let's say 10 gigawatts by 2030, you do that sort of advanced modeling and you include some policy characteristics like, oh, we wanna ensure greater access to low-income customers. Oh, and we wanna make sure that we achieve 50% clean by 2030. You have to apply those as profiles of that modeling. And then you say, okay, what does it look like? And you know what we saw is 10 plus gigawatts makes a lot of sense in what New York needs for distributed solar. Yeah. Then empower your commission to create a program to reach it that best fits within the state's market profile, you know, RTO, generation mix, whatever it be, you know, mm -hmm. every state is its own special flower to that degree. So they all do have to have their own nuances, but set the vision and the target first and think big, right? It's, yeah. there's a lot of incumbent actors that may not want that, that may say, oh, this stuff's too complicated or quote unquote, too expensive. But that's simply because they have their own resources and way of doing things that has made money for them in the past. That makes sense, that's what I would do too. But what you need to do, if I were say the governor of Pennsylvania or the governor of New Mexico is I'd say, okay, what are my goals? Oh, my goals are to meet my climate goals. My goals are to provide access to low income customers. My goals are to make sure we increase our resilience, uh, grid resilience and reduce blackouts. Okay let's just say those are my goals. Now let's work backward and let's, and let's set a big target based on what our research finds and let's work our way there rather than this sort of piecemeal approach mm -hmm. or just deferring to your incumbent actors that have built the systems of the past. And we've had to bail out multiple times yeah. after failed promises or bankruptcies. When you think about markets like Colorado, Minnesota, Massachusetts, where there's been a lot of prosperity, a lot of success, Illinois, a lot of, we'll say like wins at achieving the early goals of the projects. We still hear grumbling in the marketplace and by marketplace, I mean developers and even, and even third parties and customers that the programs weren't designed to really foster a market. Where did those programs come from? Like those are the early programs that tested the market with the caps. Did they come from the utilities, from early market action? I guess the question underlying it for me is like how, how are each of these states sort of starting down that path? Is it customer demand as per your comment earlier? Is it developers moving into those markets and insinuating that those utilities should consider community solar as an option? And if so, if the latter, what could we be doing better? So I think that where you've seen success is you've, you've seen leadership in mm -hmm. terms of championing these resources as, as being important for the state. And so when you have a vacuum of some leadership or not the attention required, you have a bit more of a design build process or a group think. And that's where you know, it's led to some issues in these projects. 
But what's really continued to sort of push through that groupthink has been customer demand. I mean, mm-hmm. ultimately, customers want access to solar. Yeah. They really like the idea of saving money on their electricity bills. And you put those things together and you have a force that's difficult to stop, right? Mm -hmm. But if you combine that sort of customer demand and the innovation that we've seen in the sector with leadership at the state level, then you have your perfect mix, right? Then you have your ability to sort of achieve larger market sizes and achieve the sort of levels of scale of the gigawatts scale that's that's required to achieve those goals and the benefits you know for the customers you guys have done as you've as you've pointed out and we'll certainly link to it in the show notes you've done a great deal of market analysis and one study that is a little old now i'd love to hear some updated numbers from you uh with Woodmec, you identified 50 million households in the next decade over 100 gigawatts of community solar capacity or or potential i'm curious to hear what is the potential upside with 10 gigawatts as a flag sort of in the sand, as it were, in New York. What are you projecting between now and let's say 2025 and 2030 as the market opportunity for community solar? Sure. So there's there's a lot to probably unpack and multiple perspectives and probably a good point to note that the Department of Energy just came out over the last six months or so with a goal of serving 5 million homes and savings of a billion dollars through community solar by 2025, which we estimate to be around 20 gigawatts of community solar, which we provided a promise to mm-hmm. fulfill that need should the policy landscape provide us that opportunity. So I do think that that it's possible. It's going to require action. I think we outlined seven key actions, one of which being 10 additional states creating new community solar programs. I mean, just today, I believe California is is going to pass a bill out of committee that pairs community solar and storage at scale, which mm-hmm. will be one of the most innovative programs in the country. That'll be exciting to see. But by 2030, you know, yeah, there's a lot of estimates out there and there's probably market potential for up to 100 gigawatts. When you look at the realities of the grid and the policy landscape and the, and the marketplace, you probably won't see that. But for reference, in the modeling we did with Vibrant Clean Energy, we found the need for 160 gigawatts of distributed solar by 2030 to achieve lowest costs to the entire system and reach 100% clean electricity by 2050. 160 gigawatts. 164, I believe, uh, to be exact. And there were a number of model runs that we did. Some were more conservative than others. Uh And that model run in particular was combining the inclusion of distributed solar and storage with that clean nationwide clean electricity target. Some that did not include the requirement at all states were still over 100 gigawatts. And, you know, for Reference, we're at about 40 gigawatts right now. So we need an additional 60 gigawatts at least of distributed solar to achieve the lowest cross grid, regardless of climate goals. And so if you assume a third to half of that as being community solar, you're going to see anywhere between 30 to 50 gigawatts, say, of community solar on the system by 2030, if you're doing it right. right? And that's being conservative. That's probably also a good moment to go back to the three pillars and say, well, if we do want to achieve the lowest cost grid, provide customers 
access to these local solar resources and reach our clean energy goals, we have to include community solar as a major component. And to do that requires state legislation, interconnection programs, and access to the bills, right? So those are those three pillars that that are required. And state legislators are dealing with lots of issues. You know, yeah. community solar is one amongst many, and we understand that they have a, a lot on their plate. And so, you know, that's that's our job. That's CCSA's job to be yeah. getting out there and saying, hey, look, this is good for your system. Your customers want it, but it also requires you to do this, to create this legislation and pass these programs. But, you know, the good news is we'll, we'll, we hope that if they do that, they'll be around long enough to show up at some, some project openings, cut some ribbons, kiss some babies, you know, yeah. all that stuff they like to do. Yeah, and I think the important thing here where we have a strong need now more than ever with other trade issues before us, that we have a strong federal policy. But the takeaway for me time and again when I talk about community solar is that this really is a state-level battle. It's a state-level game. The ground game is is at each individual state's, you know, if you're a developer in Iowa, you know, what's That's happening right. at a federal level to promote community solar really is going to still only slightly improve your chances if you haven't done any really local lobbying and, and, and been able to, to build that coalition at a local state level. That's right. And fortunately, you know, electricity markets are complicated and they're very policy driven. So... Well, there is competition and innovation. It's reliant on sort of a policy landscape and the policies both at the state level, but also at the federal level to some extent. So it okay. does require that legislators get involved. There are examples as well of, of states providing really broad frameworks and then you know the, the commissions creating programs on their own. Mississippi, in fact, we're seeing the opportunity for a community solar program to be created there directly by the commission. So there are some opportunities there. Yeah. You've mentioned a handful of states. We've sort of dabbled, we've talked obviously about the states where community solar is deep and has proven traction and track record. Mm -hmm. A lot of folks are listening, hoping that they'll get a glimpse into the future. You mentioned Pennsylvania, Mississippi, New Mexico. What stands out to me is places like Mississippi and even Pennsylvania will need by and large bipartisan or even GOP support, which traditionally hasn't been something that we would count on necessarily. So where do you see the idea of community solar bridging the gap as a bipartisan infrastructure option? And then from there, I'd love to hear where you see developers looking, the markets that you are excited about that you can at least disclose. Sure. Well, it's public knowledge and available on various state legislative portals that in Pennsylvania, let's see, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, I believe even in Missouri, you have community solar bills that are actually sponsored and led by Republicans. Wow. So you're seeing community solar receive bipartisan support. So you say, well, why Why is that the case? Why, why is this a particular issue where they have interest? And I think the reason is because you're seeing unlikely bedfellows coming together. You're seeing rural communities or farmers and the like come together with pro-innovation and competition constituencies saying, we want to see more choice and more mm. options 
for customers and more competition and innovation. Oh, and yes, we want to be able to provide constituencies like agriculture that are in need of additional revenue streams to participate in solar. And then you add in finally that you can create community solar programs that allow customers to choose what resources they receive, not through a mandate. Sure, they can exist, they can coexist, and they do coexist in in a lot of states, but they can also exist as simply an option. So when you put those pieces together, community solar becomes sort of a stew that is attractive to the left and the right. And you can see in many ways, some of the further left and the further right constituencies coming together because you have a project that's say 10 miles from the city center or from Lode that's covering five to 20 acres of a 50 acre or a hundred acre farm, providing that rural farmer new revenue streams. Stable. Long-term revenue. Yep, stable long-term revenue. And then you're also having that project provide, say, a third of that project going to supporting lower-income customers with a guaranteed bill savings, which represents a higher percentage of their annual monthly spending, which is very significant. So you're seeing that, that sort of those bedfellows coming together. Now, it is complicated. They're all dealing with lots of different issues. So it's you know, it requires getting their attention, but it, it's one of those special sort of win-win opportunities. You know, we're doing something right when we start hearing West Virginia and Kentucky in the mix. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yep. You're welcome. We're, we're happy to talk to you, West Virginia and Kentucky. We've got money ready to come in and bring private dollars to support public infrastructure. <laughs> Well, Jeff, I'd like to end on a high note here. We probably won't have enough time to really dig in to specific details, but you and I have talked a bit about the trends in community solar that you feel are the most important trends. Maybe we've touched on some of them at a high level here that you'll want to just enunciate here as we round out this conversation. Could you give me kind of a walkthrough of maybe the three or four things that you feel if folks aren't already, they should be following that for you are the most important trends right now in the community solar sector. I think the theme that we've covered over this hour has been setting big goals and and visions makes a lot of sense, both for the grid, for the customers, and for the sector. Because by thinking big, you can achieve economies of scale and you can attract the right providers in-state and out-of-state to provide the best product for customers and the best resources for the grid. So I think you're going to see a trend there of more states thinking big. I mean, we're over 20 states now that have community solar. We're not at pilot scale anymore. You know, if we want to achieve these benefits, we need to build big programs. And in doing that, we're going to achieve the greatest benefits for all customers. And, And that's where, you know, states like New York and maybe even California, we'll see what happens by the end of the day and through this session, could be in position to do that with a number of states in the Midwest filling out. I think that leads to the second bigger trend, which is that you're seeing bipartisan support, robust bipartisan mm-hmm. support. And you know, again, these policymakers have a lot on their plate. So community solar is one of a number of issues in their short sessions. So I think you know, the big question will be, can community solar ride that tide enough to move through. And and our hope is yes. And the sooner they do, the sooner that we can invite them to bill signings and kiss the babies, which is very important. So I think that's another trend. You're going to see community solar not 
only as a potential bipartisan issue, but as a real win-win and bipartisan clean energy issue. I'd say the third piece is you're going to see evolution in the way these programs are designed, and you're going to see real results in terms of building projects and offering subscriptions and achieving subscriptions for a diverse set of off-takers. Right. We've learned those lessons from the beginning that we need to achieve those, and we're making policy considerations to do it. Even at the federal level, there is now, I mean, if some of the provisions from Build Back Better were to be included in a budget reconciliation deal, there is the potential for a 10 to 20% bonus credit for projects that serve low to moderate income customers. So wow. if they serve 50% or more low to moderate income customers, which is a great way to send a very clear market signal to the sector to do something that policymakers want and achieve Absolutely. it at scale at lowest cost. Lastly, I don't know if I'd call it a trend, but you're seeing sort of a national adoption and support of community solar all the way up to the Department of Energy seeking 20 gigawatts of community solar. So an additional 16 within the next three years by 2025, serving 5 million homes and saving a billion dollars. So we have a lot of work to do in that by you know working with those state legislatures, those commissions, and ensuring that you know our members are also working to meet the policy goals of the state and the policymakers that I'm setting them out. And then vice versa, having the policymakers think big enough and knowing that they have a lot of issues on their plate, how can we help them adopt programs that meet best practices that can you know, achieve their goals and do what's best for the, for the grid? Jeff, I know that your website is replete with, with great data and insights. Is there any one particular document that you feel gives a good summary and action steps for folks that want to understand how how the market is evolving and that you would direct them to. The modeling that we've done more than supports the DOE's goal. And you know we believe that we're gonna even need to double that by 2030 to achieve a lowest cost grid, not to mention meet our climate goals. So in order to meet those, we did I I identify seven key actions that would be required at least within the next three years to meet the DOE's goal and likely then meet the 2030 goals. And, and you can find those on our website, but they're largely grounded in states needing to create programs that can achieve that sort of bigger vision and scale to achieve the lowest cost grid and meet our climate goals. And there are additional things that the development community also needs to do to build those projects and serve the customers the way the policymakers want those to be served and build a workforce, build out interconnection standards that allow us to be able to plug these projects into the grid, et cetera, et cetera. You know, Jeff, you're the expert here. I don't pretend that I know all the right questions. Is there anything, any stone left unturned? What final piece of advice might you give developers or policymakers that as a capstone to this first episode of the series? Sure, I appreciate that, Nico, because it can go unsaid, but as we've described through the, the whole interview here, these electricity markets are very policy-driven. And well, I'd love to think that policymakers simply just make decisions based on what they think is best for everyone. It requires pitching in and being a part of the process to be considered. And that's what we do with CCSA. We work with those policymakers at the legislator level or at the commission level and the other stakeholders that are part of the process to advocate for the creation 
of these programs and to apply best practices to their creation and the promulgation of rules. So anybody that's not a part of that can get involved. You can become a member of CCSA and you can get access to some of that early intelligence, but also support the creation and expansion of those programs because they only happen by sort of rolling up your sleeves and becoming part of the process. And I appreciate you highlighting some of that work we're doing here, Nico. Well, we appreciate the hard work that CCSA has been doing for the last seven years. Jeff Kramer is CEO of the Coalition for Community Solar Access, which you've heard us refer to many times here as CCSA, the National Coalition of businesses and nonprofits that work to expand community choice and access to solar for American households and businesses through this thing we call community solar. Jeff, it's truly a pleasure to get a chance to spend time with you. Thank you for helping educate us on community solar, the fourth vertical in the United States solar market. Thank you, Nico. This has been a good time. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode in this five-part series exploring how community solar works from the perspective of policy technical expertise, financial analysis, and commercial opportunity. Many thanks to the expert contributors sharing their insights to this series and to our partner EDP Renewables North America who helped make it possible. Here's a sneak peek at what's coming in tomorrow's episode. What's exciting to me now about the evolution of the field is that we're now able to serve a much broader base of customer. I mean, low income, people who rent. I mean, that's that's how we're going to achieve mm. this a, a true energy transition. We have to serve everybody. I hope you'll subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and check us out on the web at mysuncast.com forward slash community solar. That's all one word where you can read more about each guest, find additional background information on each episode and dig into the references from each discussion. If you're completely unfamiliar with me and this is your first time listening to Suncast, well, I've interviewed more than 400 founders, leaders, entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs in the clean energy industry over the last six years through the Suncast podcast, all in an effort to help you figure out exactly where you fit in this clean energy transition. If you haven't yet, I'd encourage you to give Suncast a listen. It's the most comprehensive podcast in existence, documenting the rise of the solar and clean energy revolution from the voices of the leaders brave enough to stand on the front lines. Community Solar is a production of Suncast Media, and this season one is brought to you by our friends at EDP Renewables North America. Let them be your partner and bring your next community solar project to completion. Find out how by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash community solar. Remember, you are what you listen to. So thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.